Please turn with me in your Bibles to the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. We will be looking at verses 36 through 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This is God's word. It is powerful. It is transformative. It is inerrant and infallible. Please give it your full attention. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from time to from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I don't typically grieve over the death of public figures, even ones that I would call my favorites. I may lament briefly when a favorite musician or a favorite author may die, but the grief there is mostly over the loss of future works of art, future writings, future books, future songs that they might produce. But grieving over a public figure is something that I did in a very unique way about two and a half years ago when the teacher and theologian R.C. Sproul passed away. I connected with R.C. Sproul uh, very early in my Christian life. I was a student in college, and I was a new, relatively new believer. And I was just beginning to study scripture and start to begin to dig a little deeper. And R.C. and his teaching appealed to me on two different levels. First of all, R.C. was a true Western Pennsylvania guy. He was a big Steelers fan, a big Pirates fan. And he started his ministry, which he patterned after the Labrie ministry in Switzerland that Francis Schaeffer had established, patterned that, or he started that ministry, initiated it just outside of Pittsburgh near Ligonier, 
Pennsylvania. That's why his ministry is called Ligonier Ministries. So identifying with him as a fellow Western Pennsylvanian guy, I really was drawn to his teaching. I think first of all, maybe by that, but far more importantly, as I began to listen to him, as I began to read what he wrote, I saw and, and, and caught a vision for what his passion was in his ministry, which was to take seminary level training, theological, biblical training at the seminary level, take it out of the ivory towers of the seminary and the stuffy academia that he had spent many years in himself and bring it down to the level of the average person in every pew, in every church, every Christian who wants to learn. R.C. was a brilliant theologian, a brilliant thinker, but he was very down to earth and very personable. And he had a gift for explaining very deep and profound biblical concepts in ways that any Christian could understand. Even though R.C. betrayed us Western Pennsylvanians in the mid-80s when he moved his ministry to Florida, of all places, I continued to faithfully read his books, watch his videos. I, was, I started reading his Table Talk devotional magazine when it was still a full-size magazine back in the 1980s, and I've read it almost every year, faithfully, day by day, ever since. When he started his, really in many ways, groundbreaking radio program for the kind of teaching that he was doing, I began listening then and listened regularly to his teaching on the radio. I never knew R.C. personally, only briefly met him once when he signed a book for me. But he was more of a mentor for me than anyone that I ever knew. When he died at the end of 2017, I wrote this statement on my social media account. I, it said, no individual on earth has influenced my theology and my worldview more than this great man of God. I remember as I wrote that thinking, what a, what a statement that is. That somebody I never met, never really knew, only met that one time very briefly, had such a profound impact on my life. Today, if someone were to say to me, what do you think of R.C. Sproul? I could easily imagine myself saying, I loved R.C. Sproul. I loved him because of the huge impact he had, the way that he changed the way I looked at God, the way I looked at myself, the way I looked at salvation, the way I looked at the world. But I wouldn't say that I loved R.C. Sproul or love him in the way that I love my wife or my kids, or my grandkids, or my church family. It's a different kind of love. It leads me to ask the question, what if somebody were to ask you, what do you think of Jesus Christ? You might be tempted to give a theological answer, talk about his divinity, or his humanity, or his sovereignty, or his redemptive work. But you also might find yourself saying, I love Jesus Christ. As I thought about that, I thought, especially I think in our circles, we tend to be a little uncomfortable saying that so bluntly and boldly and gave me some pauses to wonder why we may not be comfortable in just saying, what do you think of Jesus Christ? I love Jesus Christ. But I know if you are a born-again believer, you do love Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about that love. What kind of love do you have for him? What is it like 
Do you love Jesus Christ in the same way that I loved R.C. Sproul? Because his teaching was so meaningful and life-changing for me and because his example had a big impact on how I view ministry and the Christian life? Is that the way you love Jesus? Or do you love Jesus in a similar way to the way you love your family? In a very personal way, very intimate way, a bond that you rely on and, 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 and work in every day of your life? Or do you love Jesus Christ in a more transcendent way that goes beyond that kind of love that you have for family members and it goes into the area of worship, adoration, devotion, whole life commitment? How and why do you love Jesus? I think this is a great question for us to consider as we look at this story in Luke chapter 7. This story tells about a very intense, passionate, moving, and socially uncomfortable expression of love and adoration for Jesus Christ. It should make us look at our own affections towards Jesus. This all takes part takes place at a dinner party. And it's the kind of story that I think we all can relate to. It's the, when you're in a social gathering of some sort, that kind of discomfort that you felt from time to time of being at a social event and someone does something that's really embarrassing, something socially inappropriate, and it makes everybody in the room uneasy. This incident that's described in Luke chapter seven Sounds a lot like another incident that happened much later in Jesus' ministry, actually happened at the beginning of the final week of his time on earth leading up to his crucifixion. And that happened in a different place and the situation there was different, the people were different, even the message that, that was uh, given as part of it was different. So it, this is clearly a similar but very different incident that happened er much earlier in Jesus' uh, ministry. The setting is somewhat surprising. A Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. That didn't happen very often. And Jesus accepted the offer, the invitation to come to dinner. That had to be surprising to everyone involved as well because the Pharisees were Jesus' biggest critics. They were his greatest enemy in many ways while he was on earth. We don't know what Simon's motive was. He may have just been curious about Jesus. He wanted to get Jesus where he could talk to him, ask him questions, learn more about him. Obviously, Jesus by this point was somewhat of a spiritual religious celebrity in, in Israel among the Jews. And so uh, he may just wanted to press him. He might have had a darker motive. He may have wanted in trying like many Pharisees wanted to, to catch him in, in an unguarded moment, saying something that would uh, incriminate him. One thing we can be pretty sure of is that he wasn't a seeker among the Pharisees like Nicodemus was, who honestly came asking real questions and wrestling in his soul to know whether Jesus was who he claimed to be. We see that, we're going to see in a little bit, that he was rude, really, to Jesus, treated him coldly and kind of socially inappropriately, uh, the way he greeted him and accepted him into his household. There was offense there. But also, we're going to see that the skeptical attitude that is typical of the Pharisees is going to come to the surface very quickly in this story. As the people were gathering, 
at this dinner party where Jesus was the featured guest, as they gathered, Luke says, and behold, and behold. When you see that in the New Testament, when you see that among the gospel writers, you know that they're trying to say something really surprising happened. You know, suddenly something surprising happened. And he says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner came. In our cultural context, we probably would ask, how could this happen? How does somebody, not, you know, how does an uninvited guest get into the party, but especially someone who has a reputation as being a notorious sinner, how did she get invited, or how did she get into this party? Well, it helps if you understand the cultural context. In that cultural context, a wealthy house, some, a worth, wealthy person who had a, a, a nice home in that culture, would have a very open floor plan for their first floor in their home. It was very open to the outside. And it was also usually had a courtyard in front of it or around it. And so as somebody was walking by on the street in the city, they would see into that first floor almost completely. You'd be able to see everything going on, whatever dinner, whatever activity was going on in the first floor. And that's where the dinner party would have taken place. And so it really was an open, open situation and Culturally speaking, it was actually appropriate for uninvited guests to kind of come in and kind of mingle around the edges of the dinner party. They wouldn't sit at the table, they wouldn't be a part of the meal per se, and they wouldn't be a, uh, primarily a part of the conversations going on around the meal, but they were welcome to come in and, and sit around the edges of the room and, and listen, and even sometimes speak up and, and, and take part in some of the dialogue. And so again, this was just normal hospitality in the first century in a wealthy Jewish home. And so it's not hard to understand how then a woman like this, especially if maybe she had her, her head hidden or something, that she could walk in maybe unnoticed and be a part of this, this uninvited uh, group that were there. And you can imagine with somebody like Jesus, they would, it, it would attract a lot of these uninvited people would wanna hear what he would have to say, wanna hear what the dialogue would be all about. But you have to understand it took a lot of courage a lot of drive, a lot of motivation for this woman to come to a Pharisee's house. The Pharisees who saw themselves and were seen by everybody else as being the really pious religious people in that culture. She would not be welcome in that setting. She would be not welcome as part of that group. She was, it says, a sinner. And in this context, in the way in which it's used, it means that she was repeatedly guilty of what we would consider scandalous sin. Probably a prostitute, although not necessarily a prostitute, but probably a prostitute is what this is referring to. But she came, and she came to be close to Jesus, to draw near to him. She must have positioned herself, the way the rest of the story goes, she must have positioned herself right behind where Jesus was sitting at the table with the other dinner guests. It says that she was behind him as he reclined at the table. And what this refers to, and you've probably heard this before, that in the first century, the tables were actually very low to the ground. And so they would sit on very low couches and they would, um, you know, they would be sitting very low to the floor and they would put their left elbow on the table and they'd put their feet out behind them, you know, because they're almost lying down. Their feet would be way out behind them 
and then they would use their right hand to, to eat, to, to take the food to their mouth. We left-handers would have been persecuted back in the first century, just as we are today. So as Jesus is sitting there talking and eating, this woman has positioned herself right behind Jesus, which means she was probably sitting right next to his feet. And she begins to weep. She's so overcome by her feelings of gratitude towards Jesus, of a growing love and a growing adoration for him, that as she's this close to him, she's so overcome by these emotions, she begins to weep. And as she weeps, her tears drip from her cheeks down to the ground and, and, and they land on Jesus' feet. And as she sees his feet getting wetted by her tears, she impulsively loosens her hair and begins to use her hair like a cloth to wipe the, the moisture away from Jesus' feet. And even as she does this, Jesus allows her to do it. And I'm sure that that was part of it that kind of pushed her over the edge. That, that not only is, is she that close to her Lord and her Savior, but he's allowing her to do this. And, and she's so overcome that she begins to kiss his feet, which was an amazing um, expression of love and adoration. Well, at this point, if you can put yourself in the sandals of the other people there at the dinner party, you can imagine the discomfort as everyone sees this and the outrage on the part of, I'm sure, many of them, especially those that were Pharisees. Her weeping would make people squirm, but when she loosened her hair to wipe the tears from the feet of Jesus, that would be something that would be highly objectionable to the people in the room because Jewish women never let down their hair in public. And those who did have their, wear their hair down in public, it was a sign that this was a loose woman, often a prostitute. And kissing on the cheek was a normal cultural expression of greeting, but kissing someone's feet was highly unusual and would be disturbing to the people there, would be seen as something very demeaning for this woman to do. But then... To top it off, she takes, probably she was wearing it, most women wore these around their neck. They would, it would be a, a, a globe with a long neck, a jar with a long neck that they would have suspended from a, 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 something, a necklace around their neck and they would take it and to empty the contents, they would break the long neck off in order to pour out the contents. And so this is what this woman, this woman did. She, she had this very precious, it's called ointment here, but ointment is probably not the best translation. When I think of an ointment, I think of like a medicinal ointment, kind of a gel-like substance, but this was actually liquid. It's an oil. It was perfumed oil. It was perfumed with very expensive, expensive uh, spices, and so it was a very, the, the perfume that was a result of the oil with the spices being added to it was a very expensive thing, very precious thing, and women considered that one of their, their most prized possessions, and that's why they would often wear it like a necklace around their neck. And so she took this precious perfumed oil, she broke the flask, and she poured it on Jesus' feet as a tribute to him. Everyone at that dinner party would have been made very uncomfortable by the woman's actions. But Simon, the host, was horrified. Not only was this a very embarrassing display by this 
unacceptable woman who shouldn't be allowed to be there in the first place. But he's very offended by Jesus allowing her to do it and not rebuking her. In verse 39, it quotes him as thinking. Note, thinking, not saying. In verse 9, it says he was thinking, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, he was a skeptic. He was looking for evidence that Jesus was not this great prophet that all the people were saying that he was. And here he has his evidence. Clearly, he's not a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner like this, a scandalous sinner, a prostitute. And he would not allow, he would not accept her, he would not allow her to touch him and to do these things. Interesting, the word that he uses for when it says what sort of woman this is who is touching him, the word touching, if you look at it in the original language, probably has a sexual connotation to it. And so this, this is the kind of thoughts that were going on in Simon's head. He's not a prophet. He would, a prophet of God would never allow a woman to touch him in this manner. Well, Simon, having concluded he couldn't be a prophet, in his mind suddenly is confronted with the fact that Jesus proves himself to be a prophet by responding to his thoughts. And he gives a tale of two hearts here, comparing the hearts of Simon the Pharisee and this prostitute and comparing them to two debtors. Jesus hears Simon's thoughts and he tells this parable to expose where Simon's heart truly was. He tells this very simple, quick story about a moneylender who had two debtors who owed him differing amounts of money. He says that one of the debtors owed him 500 denarii and the other debtor owed him 50 denarii. One owned, owed him 10 times as much as the other. A, denari, a denarius was a, uh, basically a one day's pay for a common laborer in that day, in that culture. So, Think of it as just one day's wages, basically, for a common laborer. And so, in other words, if the debt of the one man was 500 denarii, that means he owed almost a year and a half's worth of salary to the moneylender. The other man only owed less than two months' worth of salary to the moneylender. But the moneylender, by grace, cancels the debt of both. Jesus asked the question, which one of these debtors is going to love the moneylender more. The one who was forgiven 500 denarii or the one who was forgiven 50 denarii. You can almost, you know, it's such a simple parable, but what's so amazing about it is that it's so clear. Usually Jesus' parables weren't able to be interpreted by those who weren't believers. Matter of fact, Jesus at one point was asked about that. Why don't you say things? Why don't you teach things more clearly so that people can understand you? And he responded saying, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. In other words, these people are spiritually blind, they're spiritually deaf, and they cannot accept the truth. Unless one is born again, you cannot understand the truth of God. And so Jesus told parables so that by the, by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, those who are born again and regenerate can understand, those who have faith can understand the truth that he's communicating, but those who do not know him do not know or accept that truth. 
But this is a rare parable where Jesus told it so that an unbeliever could understand it. It was so simple. Even Simon, hearing the story, and you get the sense that he doesn't want to give the answer, which is so obvious to everybody in the room. He says, I suppose. And that word in the Greek would just indicate that he was reluctant, kind of begrudgingly says, well, obviously, the guy who was forgiven 500 denarii would love the moneylender much more than the guy who was only forgiven a debt of 50 denarii. Notice what Jesus says next. He says to Simon, after affirming, you gave the right answer, Simon. He says, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? He doesn't mean, can you physically see her presence in the room? He means, do you truly see her heart? Do you see what she's about? You look at her and you see a great sinner. You look at her and you see her past. You see her shame, her guilt, her weakness, her failures, her brokenness. But if that's what you see, Simon, you're only looking skin deep. You do not see her heart. You do not see what has happened in her. He wants Simon to look beyond the woman's past, past all of her sins, past all of her bad reputation, to see her as Jesus sees her. But Simon was spiritually blind. He was a Pharisee, and Pharisees were prideful. They were judgmental. They were legalists. They were blind to grace. And to him, he looked at this woman, he looked at himself and saw himself as someone who had performed well religiously. And he looked at this woman and saw her as irredeemable, unforgivable. Since in his mind, the way to earn favor with God is to work hard at it and earn his favor by doing good works, he looked at her and said, there's no way she could ever earn her way out of the deep pit of sin that she has created for herself. Jesus told another simple parable later in his ministry to illustrate the difference between the heart of Simon the Pharisee and the heart of this prostitute. In this case, in the parable, he's more direct. He actually uses a Pharisee and a tax collector, and this is what he says. It says, he told him this parable to some who trusted in themselves. This is uh, Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus says, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus concludes by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus exposes, by means of this parable, he exposes the lack of love and respect in the heart of Simon for Jesus because he felt he didn't need to be forgiven. He didn't need grace. When Jesus came, he didn't welcome him 
as a potential Messiah, as a potential Savior, as a potential Redeemer. Instead, it says, Jesus says, you didn't even give me water to wash my feet. That was a basic social obligation to people when they came, especially someone who was to be an honored guest. He says, you didn't greet me with a kiss on the cheek, the very basic greeting. It'd be like walking into a room and someone refusing to offer their hand for a handshake or to, or to hug if that was the appropriate expression of a greeting. He says, you didn't even take some of that cheap olive oil that people typically use when they bring somebody into their home to anoint the head, to refresh the head. You didn't even give me any olive oil for my head. Simon was so full of pride and self-righteousness, he saw no need for his debt of sin to be canceled. And so there was no love in his heart for Jesus. He saw himself as so far superior to this woman who so powerfully was expressing her love for Jesus. And then Jesus turns to the woman and he honors what she did. He says, this is a beautiful expression of the kind of love that his redeeming work produces. And in verse 47, he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now you could read that the wrong way. If you're not careful and you read it out of context, you could read that to mean that her sins were forgiven, that Jesus forgave her sins because she loved him so much. But that's not what he's saying. We, what he's really saying is, because she was forgiven so much, therefore she loves so much. Because she was forgiven so much, she loves Jesus so much. We know that because that was the point of the parable. In the parable, the debtor, owned, the debtor owed a great debt that he could not repay. By grace, the moneylender canceled the debt, took it completely off the books. Therefore, that moneylender loved, or that debtor loved the moneylender greatly because of the great debt that he was forgiven. And lest there be any doubt what Jesus is saying about on what basis this woman was forgiven, he says to her as he sends her away, he says in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith in Jesus as Messiah, her faith in Jesus as the Redeemer, her faith in Him alone is what granted her forgiveness, gave her a clean record, took away all of her shame and guilt, all of her brokenness, all of the scandalous, terrible, shameful things that she had done. We don't know the background of their relationship. Obviously, she had been following Jesus. She had been hearing the gospel. She had been hearing him preach the message of the kingdom. She had seen him do his miracles and show his power. She had seen him show compassion and mercy and preach and teach about compassion and mercy to those who are unworthy. And she understood that, and that's why she felt that she could come and anoint Jesus' feet and give him honor. Caring for the feet of guests was the job of the lowliest servant in the household. And that she saw that as appropriate to her relationship to Jesus. 
Kissing the feet was something, like I said, that was a very rare expression of great devotion and humility and unworthiness before someone who is great beyond imagination. And it was appropriate for her to kiss the feet of Jesus. It shows that her love for Jesus and these expressions of love that she gave to him were motivated by deep humility, a deep awareness of her unworthiness before a holy God and a holy Messiah, and a deep awareness that he truly showed grace towards her, that he genuinely accepted her by grace alone. As I read this story, I was reminded of the story of John Newton. Well-known story. John Newton back in the 1700s was, had a very dark background, most notably as a slave ship captain, making money, making a living off of the slave trade. But after he got saved, he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And I always think of him. When, I, when we sing that line, how, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. You see, it is a deep awareness of our unworthiness. A deep humility that comes from understanding how unworthy we are in the sight of a holy God. That drives us to Christ. It's always what initially brings us to Christ is coming under that kind of conviction of sin, of seeing how great our debt is before him. And then coming to understand his grace, the grace of the cross, the grace where God himself took on human flesh, the second person of the Godhead, the eternal son of God became man lived a perfect life and therefore offered up an acceptable sacrifice as both God and man in our place to bear God's wrath, to take the punishment that our sins deserve, to pay the debt of all our sin, past, present, and future as he died on the cross and the Father turned his back upon him and he endured the pains of hell for all of God's people for all of eternity. That is the basis of our acceptance. Nothing we have done, but all that he did for us at the cross. And therefore we are accepted freely, by grace, by faith. That's what this woman understood. That no matter how dark and ugly and horrific her sins of her past, they were forgiven. And Christ accepted her fully. And because of that, she loved him deeply. Do you remember that feeling if you've been converted, if you've been born again by the grace of God? Do you remember that feeling early in your Christian life where you were so overwhelmed by your unworthiness to know God, to be adopted as a child of God, to be an heir of his eternal kingdom, to have eternal life, to be freed from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin? Do you remember those moments of being so overwhelmed? You'd break down in tears. You emotionally couldn't handle the contrast between your unworthiness and his incredible grace and acceptance. 
You know, that's why in a gospel-centered service like we have here at Oakwood, we are always sure to include at the beginning, near the beginning of the service, a time of confession of sin and reflection upon our sin. And then to hear God's word of assurance of our forgiveness. Because every act of worship should be motivated by that awareness of the greatness of our sin and the depth of God's grace and acceptance of us. That is what motivates true love for God. That is what motivates us to worship. It's what motivates us to serve Him. We see that in that sacrifice that the prostitute made, if that's what she was. When she took that flask, that, that bottle of very expensive perfume and poured it on the feet of Jesus to honor him. Willingly, excitedly, enthusiastically, sacrificing something that was probably the most expensive thing that she owned. Because the most important thing to her was to honor Christ. The most important thing to her was to, to show her love for Christ. The most important thing to her was to make a whole life commitment to Christ. To set aside everything else that is of value in this world and commit herself to Him as her Lord and Savior. So as we've reflected upon this woman, this sinner, and her love for her Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you the question again. How do you love Jesus? How do you love Jesus? Do you love him like you love your favorite theologian or your favorite philosopher, your favorite teacher? Somebody who's given you good instruction to live by? Somebody's given you good direction for life? Somebody who's helped you develop a value system? Do you love Jesus like that the same way that I loved R.C. Sproul and other teachers that I've had? Or do you love him like this prostitute did? Do you love him because he died for you? Do you love him because he has accepted you in spite of all your unworthiness because of his grace? In other words, is your love for Jesus grace-driven? Is your love for Jesus motivated by the infinite grace that he's shown to you? And is that love for him growing? Is that zeal and that passion growing for him? Do you long to draw near to him daily like this prostitute wanted to be as close to him as she could be? You know, that is the secret to true heartfelt worship and service in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is dwelling upon your forgiveness, dwelling upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, says, The only way to make men holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Just think about that statement. The only way to make men holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's what happened in this story. In some ways, loving Jesus, not just like we love our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our brothers, our sisters, our church family, our neighbors, 
not only is loving Jesus like that difficult, but obviously we're talking about a love that goes far beyond that kind of love. The kind of love that transforms into worship and whole life commitment and service. It's difficult, a very real problem in the Christian life. It's difficult to love a Lord and Savior like that whom you can't see, you can't touch, you can't be with physically. To love him by faith and not face to face. But that's something I've learned in this pandemic that we've been going through for the last couple of months is that I love my church family, but I'm not with them, by and large. I've had to learn to love my church family by email, or love my church family by text, or love my church family by, by phone call, or love my church family by Zoom, or by FaceTime. And it's not as good as being face-to-face. It's not as good as being together in each other's presence but I can still love my church family. And my love for my church family has grown in some ways, in spite of the difficulties. And we are not yet face to face with Jesus, but that's the hope of our salvation. Because of what he did for us, because of his grace, because of his forgiveness, we will one day be with him forever in every possible way. Here's the promise, and I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And I would add to that, I think appropriately, fully known and fully accepted by grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you accept And even in a case like this woman, honor our pitiful, small expressions of love because they're real and they're products of the work of your Holy Spirit in us. You have changed us. We used to hate you. We used to despise your will. We used to run away from you. But by your grace, you sent your spirit to change our hearts to open our eyes, to open our ears, to give us living hearts that can love you. Thank you for that gift, Lord. And may that love in us continue to grow. Lord, it's very easy to get distracted by the loves of this world. It's very easy to be distracted by the responsibilities of this world. It's very easy to get caught up in the works theology of the people around us. Lord, I pray that this reminder of the honor that we bring as we truly love you in open adoration and worship, that you not only accept that, but you are glorified in that. You love to receive these expressions of love. And Lord, I pray that they may become a more common and more powerful part of of our lives. Thank you for accepting us in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.